Those are the Beartooth Mountains. Okay. In Montana? Is that Montana? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. We're letting people in. Letting the first 20 in. All right. Shall we get started? Yeah, let's. I'm very excited. This is Burroughs and Burbs season two. This is episode seven, and this is the ranch show. And when we put together the ranch show, we said, what if we throw a ranch show and nobody comes? But apparently that's not going to be the case. A <laughs> lot of people have expressed interest in learning about uh, ranches in the West and finding out what's going on in the West. Um, maybe it's people like me who just see a whole lot more Montana and Wyoming license plates in the parking lot here in uh, New Canaan. Uh, want to understand what's going on. Um, so I'd like to begin by introducing Keith Gertson. He's the one who introduced me to Montana. Uh, he went out, I guess, 20 years ago and bought his first ranch in North Dakota, assembled a few more ranches around him, and eventually uh, assembled a 20,000 uh, acre ranch and sold it and has since bought uh, I guess several ranches in Montana. And so he was the expert I called first. And when I called Keith, he said, well, it wouldn't be much of a show unless you called Kim Bennett. She is the best appraiser and has been working this industry for 30 years in Montana. And so uh, you should ask Kim. And so maybe Keith, maybe you could tell us why uh, Kim's on the call, introduce Kim. Yep. Thanks for having me, John. And um, yeah, it's, it's a thrill to, to have Kim on today. And I've known Kim for many years and uh, really do look to her as uh, the, the true subject matter expert. And Kim's background um, is really, um, I think, unparalleled in many respects with uh, her experiences um, starting in appraisals and farming and obviously moving on over the last 30 some years into to ranches and recreational properties um, all throughout Montana and Wyoming. Uh, she's been selling real estate with uh, ML Properties, Century 21 ML Properties for about 20 years uh, as well. And, uh, you know, really is, uh, has been a great partner, you know, for me and a number of, um, you know, people in Montana over the uh, the decades. And I'm sure many people on the call have worked with Kim as we see some of the uh, the invitees coming through. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a thrill to, to introduce Kim and um, look forward to uh, the discussion today. So I guess the first question is, and I guess I'll ask Kim, What's a ranch? Is it just any big piece of property? Oh, well, there's um, the economic, the economics that play into it. You know, um, is it an economic unit? Is there, what size is the operational boundary? And if, if there's a desire to have a cash flow from cattle or crop income, um, you would have to have something larger, you know, um, 1,200, up to 30,000 acres, you know, 1,200 acres to 30,000 acres. Under that, I mean, and that would be probably dry crop farming if you're in that 1,200 acre range. But for cattle these days, you need quite a bit more for it to be economically profitable. But um, how big wild, do I need to be to be economic, to, to have a cattle ranch, a real cattle ranch? Oh, probably in that 20,000 acre, 15 to 20,000 deeded acre range, something like that. To run any number, any size of herd that's going to be profitable, and a lot of people are doing different kinds of management strategies now to uh, improve their properties, do more regenerative agriculture, intensive grazing, those types of things to kind of uh, help with the carrying capacity of the ranch. Um, so those are our more agriculturally oriented buyers and people. But in the central, from the western part of the state to the central part of the state we have you know, a whole different character of buyer that's been in the market for the last 20, 25 years, uh, rural recreational investment buyers. And they tend to think of a ranch as anything of you know, 640 acres or above, and some people even down to 160 acres in their mindset, because a lot of them are coming from out of state, but they're not- Hollywood? Yeah. And they're New not, York? Yeah, or New York or Georgia or Texas. They're not, they're, you know, they're, they're emotionally connected to being in Montana, the mystique of Montana. They're, um, 
they want space. They're, they're, um, you know, you can't get these kind of spaces out east much anymore. So, and having um, the views and the water, live water, and all of these amenities are very important to the recreational investment buyer. Doesn't mean they won't won't run cattle or grow crops, uh, and they'll do that for for uh, some income. And the income that gets generated on these recreational ranches pays usually for a manager and some repairs and maintenance and um, the taxes, real estate taxes. But, it's mostly a personal matter. People are um, wanting to be out in Montana. From, you know. so let's, let's orient ourselves. What are the mountains behind your head and what are the mountains behind Keith's head? Is it all one set of Rocky Mountains? No, the mountains behind my head are called the Crazy Woman Mountains and they are an island mountain chain that is um, between Livingston, Montana and Big Timber, Montana, north of the interstate there. And then south, uh, south of there is the Beartooth Absorca Mountains. And that's what you see behind Keith is the Beartooth Mountains. So Keith, yeah. you told me you had five criteria when you were moving from North Dakota to Montana that you were thinking about not just the, the, um, the amount of cattle, you had a word for that, but you had five things that you were thinking about that would translate to value in your mind. What were they and what was your thinking in terms of moving to the Beartooth Mountains? You know, there's always been a, a number of factors that we looked at when we try to make a decision on, on what we think A will be a place where there, that we want to be and spend time. Um, and a lot of that was driven by recreational use and some of the things that we, we like to do outdoors. Uh, but then it was sort of what are the other sort of amenities and attractions to the area that you're in, you know, some of them being so. Sort of close proximity to a national park, um, you know, close proximity to a town, um, looking at uh, specifically an airport so that you can get to and from. And as everyone knows, getting to, you know, these places can be, you know, quite difficult um, if uh, you don't have direct flights or you, you don't have the benefit of, you know, um, a private aircraft, uh, which in many cases is, is necessary to get to some of these places. But uh, the other real factors that we look at, um, you know, our views, um, having a viewscape of mountains, um, close proximity to a, a fly fishing river so you can get to a place to, to fish um, and uh, a ski resort um, being within, you know, an hour or so of a ski resort. And so those are the things that we looked at. And, and if you look at you know, many areas in Montana, and, and certainly they're not undiscovered. Um, and if you draw sort of a radius of 100 miles around certain areas like uh, Bozeman or, um, you know, Missoula, you know, you'll pretty much check all those boxes. And so, you know, what we specifically have always done is sort of look on the periphery of the really hot areas, the areas that are already well discovered and have been for the last 30 or 40 years. And clearly today, things are getting a lot more active in those markets, but it's driving buyers and it's finding, um, you know, new entrants into the market. People are looking in the I would say less desirable areas, although I would say that there really isn't a less desirable area in Montana. It's just, you may not have those mountains behind me um, that you're looking at, but you may have an equally uh, beautiful viewscape and have all the amenities or many of the amenities that I was talking about. I mean, when we, we can talk about segmenting the state into different you know, pieces, and I know in our pre-call we talked about you know, why Montana versus other states, Wyoming, um, Colorado, uh, Idaho, uh, you know, I think if you look at the topography of the state, Montana really does offer fairly unique, uh, you know, sort of topography. It, it is, you know, uh, the fourth largest state in the country by geography, but also has this just amazing abundance of mountain ranges and viewscapes that I think are, are, are more unique in many respects than some of the other states. And I'm sure people on this call will, would argue the, uh, the contrary, but, you know, if you look at um, just sort of the, uh, the diversity. And then if you look at the amenities from a public standpoint with national parks from Glacier down to Yellowstone Park, it's got an, a massive you know, amount of, uh, of recreational and, and um, you know, viewscape opportunities. So I do think it's unique, but as you move east and we can talk about that uh, a little bit more, you have the, the great you know, sort of upper plains of Eastern Montana that have a whole different dynamic uh, and some of that is more agriculturally driven, and, and you'll see that that where the investor interest there may it may be more oriented towards um, agriculture and uh, and and different types of hunting. 
Keith, does that topography continue up into Alberta? What yeah. you see in Montana, it's the same. I mean, it depends if you look kind of east and west, but it you know as you get east of the Rockies, and that really starts around Billings. Um, if you look right in the middle of the state, yeah. east of Billings, you're sort of in the Upper Plains, and that that landscape looks very similar. You do have some of the breaks and the badlands in certain sections along the Missouri, um, and all the way over to uh, the eastern part of Montana and southeastern Montana. Um, but for the most part, that land looks, you know, fairly similar. Um, you know, obviously some differences, but it's flatter there. And as you get north and west of, of Billings, it continues to run up that line where behind Kim, the crazy mountains, and those ranges go all the way up um, into Canada. So what's changed in the last year? Um, let me just remind me if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but the appreciation of land has averaged of ranch land in Montana has averaged 8.8 .8 over the last 20 years, 8.8% growth. But I believe Keith told me that in the last two years, you've been running at 20% growth, more or less 17%, somewhere around close to 20% growth. And I'm wondering, well, so what's changing? I mean, it's always, it's been growing steadily for 20 years, but now it's growing uh, crazy. Why is that? Well, you have to go area by area, really. I mean, some areas have actually seen in the last two years, a uh, 50% increase or, you know, hundred percent, you know, um, on, on, in certain areas. And so, um, other areas are in that 12%, 15% range the last couple of years. Demand, I, suspect, I suspect the recreation people, the people like Keith who say, I want a ski lodge, and I want it to be convenient and commutable and with a beautiful view, those people are driving the 50% growth, right? Well, uh, it's demand, you know, it's supply and demand. The, the supply is very, very low. In the last 18 months, the amount of properties that have come on the market has been half of what's been going out the door. So it's just um, demand, especially in these high amenity areas like the Paradise Valley and the, you know, the Bitterroot Valley and, and Northwestern Montana and the Kalispell area. So there's a lot of um, demand for these scenic properties. And so um, it's just, it, it's, we've been found what we call it. We've been found on a different level. Now we were found back in 2005, 2006, seven. And now this is at a whole different level. And, the pandemic really created a rush, uh, especially in the residential market out here. We had people buying houses sight unseen all day long for 12 to 15 months. That's kind of slowed down now, but um, the, the average home price in Bozeman, Montana is now, in little Bozeman, Montana is now approaching $800,000 for a house in the city limits. And that's just the average. So, um, and in the in that general area in the county over there, the the prices, you know, the average prices are approaching a million just out in the county area, and it's flooding out into all the rest of the state as well. You know, the same kind of things are happening in Kalispell and Missoula and Billings was the number one emerging residential market in the nation last month, and so it's it's um it's just a whole different level. So from and, from a standpoint of the buyers that you're seeing, I, mean, I, I can imagine that there was always the demand for people who wanted the agricultural operation of, of a ranch. There's, that's always been probably solid, consistent for, for decades and decades. But now it seems that people want to enjoy the land and the value and really just want to pass it on to their children. And it's, during right. COVID, of course, it was kind of an escape and it was a, it was a haven for safety in some ways. Right, it was. But, you know, it's almost like my, my brother's a biker and he just over the past decades, he was like, you know, all the all the people in the in the biking community were so upset because all the doctors and the lawyers are having midlife crisis and they started buying, you know, Harley Davidson's and the prices just like shot up. Are you is that who the buyer is now? It's just there are people that where wealth has been so much wealth has been created. It becomes a bit of a vanity play where they just want to they just want to have that in their portfolio. I think that's a, a big piece of it, Roberto. And I think that um, 
what we see, what we've seen out here over the last 20 years, when the stock market starts being a little volatile or, you know, not acting um, very, very stable, we see people that really want to park their money in Montana. Um, they, they want to have hard assets on their balance sheet. So they come out here and buy land and buy, buy properties. And, you know, they're in it for a long-term hold. Like you said, they want, a lot of them want a legacy property where they're, buying a ranch and they're going to hold it for a minimum of 20 to 30 years and pass it on to their heirs, you know, and then the heirs have to deal with, with the ranch at that point. One of the trends we saw right before the pandemic was we were seeing less and less younger people buying ranches it was still the guys that were in their, um, you know, 50s, 60s, they still wanted a ranch. So they were out here buying and people were kind of concerned about, um, you know, the younger people more wanted more of a, a, a you know, a, a big sky condo where they can lock it up and leave for six months and not have to worry about it. But what we've seen in the last two years, those people have moved back into the ranch market. The younger people have moved back into buying ranches as well. So at that space, they want the social distancing, the ability to recreate outside on their own place without running into a bunch of people. And, and it's just the, the privacy of it. Are so, any of those people dealing with the agricultural or operation? or are they hiring a third party? Can you do that? I would imagine that that, you know, if I was someone who was looking for rent, I don't know anything about how to run it, but I would probably be very interested in all the, you know, the peripheral aspects of it, but I wouldn't know anything about the operation. Well, a lot um, of them come in, a lot of them do come in with a really an attitude of learning and they, a lot of times they'll keep the, the previous owner there and they'll build their own larger home or a home that they want, but they'll keep the previous owner there to run the property. And sometimes they'll hire a manager and, or they'll um, lease out the property to, there are a lot of farm and ranch families that like to take on leases and, and run cows and hay and make hay and, and farm. So they can lease it out. Leasing land is a pretty easy thing to do here. There's high demand for that. And then once they buy it, they'll usually participate in say branding or harvesting, or they'll, they'll have that experience, you know, where they'll learn more as they go along. But yeah. So Keith, tell me about operating a ranch. How many cattle did in your la either the current ranch or the last ranch, how many cattle did you own and how many of other people's cattle was on your land? And did you lease other lands around you in order to run cattle? Well, in the Dakotas, we, we started off pretty small and it, it expanded over time. Um, we had what we call a registered herd of, uh, of Angus cattle uh, for a number of years, and that was in the 200 plus mother cows. But over time, as we expanded and the partner that I had, we ended up rolling up um, a number of the other ranches and then uh, really running my, my cattle partner running, you know, at some at 1.800 um, mother cows on that, um, that ranch specifically. And over time, that you know, that number sort of ebbed and flowed, and we did um, sometimes partner with other ranches, lease other ranches. Uh, there, you know, were there was a collection of over thirty six thousand acres that we participated in on the lease. So there's ways to expand it and and grow it. Um, I think that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, in all aspects of the West. But um, you know, depending on how, the scale and size and, and the amount of commitment you want to put in, both financially and from a time perspective. You know, there are those options. There are clearly a lot of people that um, that buy ranches and probably, you know, I think many coming from out of state that that have this dream and this vision of owning and operating a ranch. And, and then when you get into the complexities of actually doing it, the time commitment, it's just like owning any home. You know, there's there's just an, an element of of commitment, uh, whether it's, you know, dealing with uh, utility issues or uh, a broken refrigerator. When you're talking about a ranch, you know, you're looking at you know, issues with cattle and management and fences and water, uh, tractors, equipment um, not working, uh, you know, the daily calls that you get are, can be pretty, um, can be pretty daunting. So it is a process. It does take, uh, I think, a fairly um, uh, rigorous uh, approach to, to managing a business because ultimately it is a business. And like any business, you can buy it as a, you know, a limited partner or participant uh, and have very little to do with it, or you can get super involved with it. I'm, I'm on the other end of the extreme. Um, and, you know, and there are partnerships uh, out there that you can, then you can participate in. Again, as simple as a, an investment partnership or get really involved with the cattle selection and, you know, the rotational grazing patterns and the type of, uh, of cattle that you put on the, uh, the property. 
uh, and get involved with uh, everything from moving the cattle to uh, shipping. But, uh, you know, it's all levels of in between. Um, but I think, you know, the, the vast majority of the newer buyers that want trophy properties um, are finding an outsourced solution. They find um, a tenant that they lease to usually second, third generation Montana family. Many times they've already operated on the, uh, on the property or have an adjoining property. They, they know the country uh, and are more than willing to, to pay you a per acre lease um, on an annual basis or a multi-year basis. And you can just collect the income and, um, and call it today and enjoy the property. So uh, all levels of, of, of commitment. So some people will even do it. They'll do it just enough to kind of defray costs where it's yeah. not something that's tremendously profitable. It's just kind of, it's part of having a multidimensional aspect to your ranch. So yes, I have livestock. I have. Right. And I think, I mean, I think if you look at the, the in, income sources as, as an investor, uh, you, you, you need to, to, you know, recognize that the prices that you're paying, and if you're looking at it from a cap rate perspective, you know, relative to those cap rates, um, those cap rates historically um, have been in the low single digits. And, um, you know, they, that's a struggle to get there today. But if you, th if you assume that you can uh, generate a 2% cap rate on your investment, that 2% for the most part covers um, a ranch manager, you know, some, some level of employment employee on the property, you know, some of the externality costs of fencing and repair and, and taxes, which um, are very low um, in agricultural communities. They, they, the tax assessment's not based on the price of the property, but it's on the, you know, sort of the ag value uh, per acre. And it's a, it's a much lower number than what we would be used to in New York or Connecticut or New Jersey or Florida, um, where, where the uh, property taxes are super high. So you can cover a big chunk of the um, sort of the initial expenses, but it's not going to pay for, um, you know, the principal and interest payment on a note if you have debt on the property by any means. Um, I can't, I can't borrow money. I can't borrow $10 million, go buy a ranch in Montana, leave it alone and cover my mortgage. I'm borrowing money at 3%. And you're telling me that I'm I'm going to expect maybe two percent only on on a cap rate on a on a cap rate is that right? Unless I start thinking about cattle or other sources of revenue on agricultural income. But most of these rural recreational investment buyers know the history of Montana. Montana is about sixty five percent public land, so they're not we're not making any more private land in Montana. And the more the demand and the less supply, you know, we have high interest and the appreciation over time is what, where they're gaining their, when they go into this long-term hold, the appreciation over time, the steady appreciation um, is where they're getting their return on investment. And that's the number we referred to earlier as 8.8% over 20 years. I just did a study in Musselshell County on sale resale data for ranches up there and the lowest sale resale I had was 17%. They were clear up to 52%. Oof. So it's, it's, and that particular area has been found recently as well in the last five to eight years for elk hunting. So elk command a premium when you have elk on your property. People love to elk hunt. They come out here and buy a property and, um, and, you, and it has to be over 640 acres because you can't get an owner preference hunting tag for elk with uh, under 640 acres. Is, so, is there any sort of measurable component of like an Airbnb type of thing where people say, I have this amazing ranch, you can go rent it for four weeks, you know, in October and do all the fishing and have your family. And I mean, does that measure out to anything? Well, we have historically had guest ranches in Montana since the 1800s, the late 1800s and in Wyoming as well. And um, there are still some viable guest ranches that are working here. A lot of them have been sold and are used for private uh, retreats and corporate retreats. And um, Roberto, they're not on Airbnb. <laughs> no, I know, but I just but there conceptually are, the you know, idea of 
would housing of some sort be generate any sort of income component that would increase your, you know, your cap rate of any sort, you know, some sort? No, not substantially. There, there are people that do rent their cabins and things like that for Airbnb, but I, I don't think it adds substantially to it. You're still going to keep going back to that appreciation and supply and demand over time is what. Can we just go back to the buyer? I mean, you, sure. I'm sure there's been a tremendous influx of people coming from, I'm sure, everywhere. All over the country, people are coming. But is there one specific region where there have been, you're seeing so many people coming from, say, New York or like in our market, we, you know, there are times when we see a tremendous amount of Russian buyers coming in or Chinese buyers. There are the foreigners. I mean, are we the foreigners that are coming in? And, 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 and then or do you actually see any real, real foreigners? Coming oh, yeah. To? Yeah, we we have we are we are in a national and international market here. You know, in the past we've had people I've worked with that have been from Switzerland and and France and you know various other places around the world. They come and buy ranches here and and you know New York the New York City people have really participated in our market probably almost the longest of any group. And um, you know I have a lot of clients I've worked with over the years that are right on Madison Avenue, their offices. So they're, they're a lot, they have been here the longest and they've also been the ones that have really supported the conservation effort in Montana, the conservation easements and the conservation effort here. And also the folks from San Francisco. So we've had a lot of people that support conservation in that, in, from those two cities. And um, I do about probably 60% of the appraisal work I do is conservation easement work. So um, and just on more, the, the latest kind of trend is Texans. We've got a lot of Texans coming here and that started about 2010. So um, Chicago, quite a few people from Chicago, Atlanta area. Um, Do the Texans come with big hats? <laughs> big trucks. Big trucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's always been that interest. And, and of course, you know, when we had the River Runs Fruit movie and the Horse Whisperer movie, that was a big, a big deal that brought in quite a few people. They saw the scenery and they, part of the Horse Whisperer movie was filmed right here in Big Timber where I live and south of town. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's the mystique, you know, there is a, a Western- Hollywood movie. plays a role in all of these markets. Is Sex in the City for New York, everybody wanted to come. You know, these types of movies, I was talking to John about Connecticut. I was like, you need a really great show for like, you know, New Canaan about just the quaintness of just how beautiful it is, like a 30 something show and everybody's going to flood there. Yeah, that's assuming that's what you want. I'm not hearing that Montana is entirely happy with the, 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 the latest wave. Are you? Is the culture changing with, with all these outsiders? Well, it is. Um, you know, we were, um, we we're just, you know, we, we, 10 or 15 years ago, if you ask somebody or 20 years, why are you moving to Montana? Well, the beautiful scenery and the people are so nice there. Everybody's really nice, you know, and now it's just a lot, the pace of life. If people are moving here from New York and Seattle and San Francisco and LA, and, you know, we have a lot of tech industries here, especially in the Gallatin Valley that have moved in from California and you get that fast paced energy coming in here, it just doesn't, it just changes the whole energy of the state. You know, people are just on a different gear than we ever were. I remember when I first moved here 30 years ago, I thought, wow, these people eat really slow. But, you know, <laughs> it turned out to be a good thing for me. I lived a lot slower life, but it hasn't been like that lately. It's been quite um, a lot more manic. So you're no. too nice. The folks in Texas make no bones about it. They say the California influx is ruining their state. Joe Rogan every day. And he came from California, says it's a big problem when all of California has suddenly discovered Texas. You're so nice about it. If the worst thing you could say is that they eat too fast and they bring <laughs> and they bring energy I mean, that's nice. That's Midwestern nice right there. Well, yeah. And they're just not, you know, it, it is, we just keep setting a good example, hoping <laughs> for the for them to see that. But, you know, um, 
we started to see a trend before the pandemic of people not wanting to buy these huge homes on ranches. So a lot of these people would come in 20 years ago and they would build a 12,000, 10,000 square foot house, you know, and then all of a sudden in the last five or six years or a little bit longer, we started seeing people say, no, we don't want to buy that. We don't want that big house to take care of. We don't want the energy bills. We don't have to clean it and all of that. So even some people tore them down, you know, David Letterman tore down a 12,000 square foot log home on a place he bought because he just didn't want it. And so um, a Texan moved in north of me over here and they're now building a 20,000 square foot lodge with an indoor outdoor swimming pool. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it does get to 40 below zero here, you know, I guess they'll figure that out at some point, but, um, yeah, so I can, um, share a little bit about appraisal if you want or not. Yeah. The most fascinating thing that I learned was that you were in no disclosure state and that, you can't just go down to the courthouse and look up what everybody paid. And because every, all the realtors on this, on this call and on our database who got the invitation today, uh, that's what we rely on. We rely on big public databases of what everybody paid and our clients have access to that. And so we, you know, we, in order to add value, we have to have gone into and, you know, uh, many of these homes, many of these apartments and be able to tell them something more than the database can share. But you don't have the advantage of being able to look up a public database. Tell me more about that. Where do you yeah. get your information? Well, um, from building relationships with people for 30 years. Um, you, there is, we're non-disclosure state, Wyoming is non-disclosure, Idaho is non-disclosure and New Mexico. So there's four of us in the lower 48. And I think that Alaska is as well, but so yeah, no, you can't just go into the courthouse. There's no tax stamp where you can back into the number like in California, there's no, nothing in there that tells you what the property actually sold for. So you have to pull a deed, call the buyer or seller or be in touch with their agent. And with the multiple listing service that we have here for residential, you can use that for residential appraisals, but any property over 160 acres is not required to be reported on the MLS. So we're kind of out of luck for, for that. Um, so we have to know somebody involved with the transaction. We have to be able to try to get a hold of the buyer or seller, which that's very difficult these days because a lot of them don't have landlines and they all have cell phones. And so it's a detective job, you know, detective work. And um, about and what incentive would they have to share with you? I mean, you know, uh, they have no incentive. I have to plead my case almost every time, you know, and so a lot of them will buy a ranch and then they'll want some estate planning appraisal done later, you know, and then I'll get the price a little bit later or something like that. But a lot of this, I have to either be part of the transaction, know someone that's part of the transaction or, you know, figure it out through the back door, but it's, it's very difficult to do appraisal work here. It's, um, it's just hard. Um, there is a, there is a multiple listing service for ranches that my friend Andy Ron started called Montana land source. And I can share my screen and show you that, but he doesn't report any sales prices. It's just, um, it's just, um, your screen how can a realtor do his or her job if if we i mean you know my client says you know i think i'd like to buy this 20 million dollar ranch what do you think if, as a realtor if i don't know i guess um sales in the last six months sales in the last year comparable sales how can i provide any advice whatsoever so well, they, they have to call people like me. I've been keeping a database in Montana and Wyoming since 1989. So you kind of have to reach out to the other professionals and try to find out kind of what's been happening. So um, this website is a great website for information, montanalandsource.com. Um, these are live market statistics. So right now on the market, we have 412 properties that are over 200 acres that are for sale. Um, the new listings in 2021, we've had 213. So you can see that number is down by 72% from last year. So we just aren't, the properties that are coming in versus the properties that are going out is just substantially lower. We just are really low supply right now of properties. Um, 
And our days on the market is way down, down 159%. So um, we've had 341 ranch properties sell in 2021 to year to date. And that, that uh, is up 33%. So we're just not getting the listings. We're really low on listings everywhere. So this map over here that you see is um, showing all the red is listings and I can pull up the map itself. So according to that chart, $2,000 an acre, and Keith's sitting on, I think you said 20,000 acres. So Keith, I'll give you $40 million for your ranch. What do you say? <laughs> Am I overpaying? The scary thing is I have no idea because there's no database to compare it to. Right. So wow. here's, here's where we have to go in and we can go into any given area and the properties that are in red are listings the properties in yellow are pending sales of property wow. 200 acres and above and the black are all the the sales that have happened probably since 2010 Andy started doing this and so um and then you can just click on each one and and um kind of see that was a 45 million dollar sale this is the one that just sold this year for set a record, 136250 The property was in five units. It was called the CA Ranch. And- um, Was that the uh, one in the movie? No, well, yeah, this part of it up in the North, this bigger piece of it. Um, and the, the buyer of this ranch was from Texas. And he also bought this ranch right here in Big Timber right before that, then he came in and bought this ranch. And this ranch had been a family cattle operation for since the 1940s. And within two months, he dismantled the whole property. He sold off these four smaller tracks already. Um, and he's keeping this larger unit up here for recreation. And he's made money on all four of these that he's sold off. And that was since September 1st. Is, does it exist where um, you get a better per unit price the larger you get no. like per acre? No, what's interesting is a lot of times you'll get a higher price per acre for a smaller property. And that's true under 640 acres probably. But once you start hitting that 640 to 1,000 acre price in certain parts of the state, there's really no difference for size because people just want the land. So it's we see a, a bifurcation of the state. Um, Lewistown is right here. It's the center of the state. And this east, the western part of the state, you can see all the mountains out here in the western part of the state. So what we've seen over the last 30 years is the high prices started happening over here in the west. And as those lands become in less supply, the demand and the prices start to go up as you move eastward across the state. And mm -hmm. so like Lewistown, you know, 10 years ago, you could still buy a place for 800 to $1,000 an acre. And now it's 2000 to 2500 an acre for any kind of recreational ranch in that area. And you can see it pressing in on the eastern part of the state over here. So we say Montana is one town with a lot of long streets. You know, we only have a million ninety thousand residents in this whole entire geographic area here, but we have a lot of second homers. We have a lot of out-of-state owners, and all of that. So, um, where on the map is your crazy woman mountains, and where is Keith's Beartooth Mountains? Yeah. Okay, right here is the crazy woman mountains, the island mountain chain, and this is Livingston, and here's Bozeman right here. Everybody talks about Bozeman probably in New York City. I know they do in San Francisco. And then I live here in Big Timber, just north of town. So Bozeman is looking at, the view from Bozeman is of the Crazy Woman Mountains. No, it's of the Bridger Mountains right here and the Bridger Mountains. And then there's the Gallatin Range, which is south of Bozeman. Just yeah. for, for perspective, how far is Bozeman from this, uh, would you just call it Lewis? Uh, Lewistown? Yeah. No, no, right in the center where you were before. Sorry. Oh, Livingston. Livingston. From Bozeman to Living, that's about 25 miles. Okay. From Bozeman to Livingston. Then I live over here in Big Timber. And then Keith is clear over here in um, the Red Lodge area. So right in here. 
So he's looking at the Beartooth of Zorka Mountains, which are right here. And Red Lodge has its own ski area and it's a very beautiful place too. And so I heard an anecdote the other day that every residential lot that was subdivided prior to the 2008 recession in the Red Lodge area is completely gone and being built on right now. So same thing is happening over in Three Forks, Montana. It's in three counties right here and Broadwater County has a really low tax base and rate. So all this area over here is a bedroom community to Bozeman now. People are building huge homes on one to five acre tracks over here that are selling you know, from 525 to $800,000. So it's a lot of, a lot of development going on through this corridor right here. Are there are any urban centers here that are trying to or leaning towards becoming something like an Aspen or something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's Big Mountain up in Kalispell, which is up here. Oops, sorry. Big Mountain up here by Flathead Lake mm -hmm. and then Big Sky, which is is down by Bozeman, south of Bozeman, about 40 minutes. It's uh, and you can fly directly to these two locations from New York. No, uh, you can fly to Bozeman direct from New York, but I don't know about Kalispell. Let's but just say for the uber wealthy who have their own planes, et cetera, do they have <laughs> landing strips on their on these ranches? No, but all of the smaller airstrips, like in Big Timber and Livingston, have expanded to accommodate private aircraft. Are they not permitted to land on their ranch? Right. Well. There's a ranch down in Carbon County where the, the gentleman has his own beautiful paved landing strip and so and hangar. So he can land his private planes and private jets there. But there's not very many people that go to that expense. They will they they push these local areas to um, expand their airports and they have. Mm -hmm. Now Bozeman doubled its size of its airport six years ago and they're doubling it again. It's the largest volume airport in the state, surpassed Billings seven or eight years ago. But there's numerous new hangars being built there. The airport's actually right in Belgrade, right in here. They fly in there, they get into their car and they go down here to Big Sky and they have their, they're either um, have their own condo or whatever in the Big Sky area or they're up in Yellowstone in the Yellowstone Club. And that's like a 30 minute drive? About 45. Okay. So we've talked about ag we've talked about um, recreational buyers who, like Keith said, they're interested in a view, a ski lodge, and and most importantly, now I'm hearing an airport. You got to be, you know, you have to be able to to get there from L.A. or New York or or Dallas. Um, and then we've also talked about a whole separate class of buyers, which are uh, agricultural who are gonna run cattle and they're interested in how much water uh, and what's the quality of the grass. And they're not interested in the view because it's mostly enjoyed by the cows. They're, they're considering it for its agricultural value. Keith mentioned to me, there's a whole nother category of buyer that's come into the market. One is the Mormon church. They bought a million acres recently. And another one you said was NGOs. Uh, who've bought another million point two acres in the last couple of years. What are, what is the motivation behind NGOs buying land and what kind of land are they looking for? You want to answer Keith or? Well, I think you're, you're much more, I'm, I'm only seeing the, um, you know, sort of the, the ramifications of their, their, that participant so much land and creating scarcity and also driving prices up uh, because they have maybe a, a 50 or 100 year outlook, um, or at least in the case, I think, of the Latter-day Saints. But the um, this new entrant uh, of uh, APR, uh, American Prairie uh, you know, Foundation Reserve, they, 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 uh, they have become, you know, a, a new entrant, somewhat new entrant that I've run into and, and really Kim has educated me on their presence in some of the areas of property that we're, where we've been looking and they've had it's sort of a disproportionate effect on, on creating, uh, you know, scarcity and driving prices. They're looking for much larger ranches. Um, and as John, I'd mentioned uh, in the pre-call that, that oftentimes they essentially eliminate the interior fences of the ranches and they put 
you know, bison on the property and they're really trying to get it back to sort of, an, sort of its natural state. Um, you know, I, I just, the only thing I throw out as a comment about that is, and it's something that uh, I think is, is, has created maybe some um, animosity and tension. It's just me as a, you know, as a resident saying that, um, you know, they, they have a direct impact and I think negatively on uh, the financial viability of, of family ranchers and, and people that want to stay in agriculture because every one of those properties that gets bought and gets taken out of, you know, cattle ranching and what is really the life blood of a lot of the agriculture and and the families in in Montana are, are essentially being depleted of those properties and that opportunity. So it does have a profound impact on the future of, of you know, family ranching in Montana and something that we're um, keeping an eye on. Do they make a conservation argument? Do they say that they're uh, what they're doing is healthier for the land than than ranching or they don't they don't buy it they, they don't have to make that argument they're just saying we're, we're just buying it to hold it and we have no interest in ranching well there's two different levels of of non-governmental organization ngo buyers there's um the american prairie foundation which is a nonprofit, but when they buy property they don't put a conservation easement on the property so they're not necessarily protecting the land in perpetuity and the Nature Conservancy has been in that same, sim this is all taking place in the Eastern part of the state, mostly the Northeastern part of the state. So at this point, and the Nature Conservancy, who is a world renowned conservation organization is actually kind of competing with the American Prairie Reserve now. And, you know, buying, buying some ranches, dividing them uh, to a certain degree, but selling them to neighbor ranchers at a rate, and they put a conservation easement on it first to protect it in perpetuity. And then they're selling it at a discounted price to neighbor ranchers in order to keep these people growing and keeping, keeping them viable. So the land is protected in perpetuity when the Nature Conservancy is involved. The other uh, group is Ducks Unlimited. They've been um, coming into that area and there's a lot of prairie potholes and water up in that area. And they, they put a conservation easement on the property and with the NRCS or Fish and Wildlife Service, and then they resell the property at a lower rate to a rancher or a startup uh, family that is trying to start in the business. So there's different motivations behind all of these, but they're all players in the market now. And the Conservation Fund is another group that has been buying land along the, the Char Charles M. Russell um, the CMR, which we call the CMR Reserve, which is runs on either side of um, Fort Peck Lake. It's a huge um, wildlife area run by the federal government. So they've been buying things along there to try to add into the Charlie Russell. Uh, the Forest Service has tr also been acquiring land to fill in in holdings and things like that here in Montana. So there's competition, not only from the private sector, but also from these other types of entities. How about Google and Tesla and Oracle? I know Oracle's come to town and Google and was it Snowflake, did you say? And uh, a whole lot of tech. Um, right. Was it, what, what's the new name for it? The well, the Bozeman area in Gallatin Valley is the Silicon Prairie. Silicon so, Prairie. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of people that have moved in, you know, from California into that area. And um, when Oracle bought Right Now Technologies, that made a big difference over there and people started taking notice. And we have a fairly favorable tax structure for corporations here, uh, not quite as favorable as Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming is one of the best states to retire to. It's got a very, very low tax load for people. Their, their real estate taxes are just almost next to nothing. And they've made so much off the oil and gas industry over the years that they have just they're very stable there. So, um, so why would Oracle and Google and others pick Montana over say Wyoming? Well, Wyoming is desolate in a lot of places. I mean, there's some beautiful parts of Wyoming on the, you know, in Sheridan and Jackson and Star Valley and all of that, but there's also parts of Wyoming that are extremely high desert. You can be driving along on the interstate thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in the desert. Well, you're at 7,800 feet. And the winters are very difficult there. So, you know, who knows? They might make it there yet. <laughs> so what? just as you're um, describing Wyoming, how would you describe Idaho, Colorado? 
Well, historically, Wyoming has been a spillover market for Colorado and for Montana. So when we start seeing a lack of supply in Montana and Wyoming, you'll see these values start to increase in Wyoming because people are heading to Wyoming in the in the Cody area or Lander or, you know, some of these areas that are quite, quite beautiful. There are higher elevation, but they're beautiful. And so you'll start seeing people flow into there. Um, Idaho has a relation, more of a relationship, I would say, on some level with, with Wyoming, as far as like in the Jackson area, there's, there's no housing for service workers. So all the service workers have to drive over the pass and live in Driggs and some of those places. Um, and then Idaho is all along, of course, the western border of Montana. And it's quite, tim- there's a lot of timber over there, very dense, thick timber. A lot of timber companies are operating in that area. And so we don't see, um, we have Missoula and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is very popular. Coeur d'Alene has been one of the most popular places in Idaho for a long, long time. So, but the, the market's very strong over there in Idaho, just like it is here. So. Keith, you said a lot of people come to you saying, listen, I want to buy a ranch, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from the million dollar question of what's your budget, what do you, what do you want to know? What do they, what, and what do they, what do they need to know when you're like advising them or they just, you know, in casual conversation or even more substantial conversation? I think mo- most of the conversations start off casually. And then as, as you talk about um, maybe some of the operational aspects of the ranches and what some of the, the streams of interest could be, whether it's the recreation of the, the, maybe the potential to make money on cattle or not. Um, but they, they find it a fascinating business. And, and, you know, I think after, you know, so all of those obvious things that make Montana or Wyoming or any of those states beautiful, um, you know, investors and people that are, are either in the money management business or are running family offices, uh, they're, they're always looking at alternative asset classes and looking for a place to store value, park money, uh, protect their assets. I think, you know, one of the obvious factors of real estate is, is that it's finite and, um, you know, location is key. Um, and, you know, Montana in some respects had, you know, components of great location and some not so great locations. Maybe that's changed a little bit. Locations now are, are in demand and in demand by different parties and different groups. There are people that just want to ski and, and have a you know beautiful experience for a week or two a year. And there are people that are looking to deploy, you know, tens of millions of dollars in, into something that they can enjoy a lot or not at all. Um, and so I see a lot of uh, family office, uh, you know, type investors, um, larger families that you know, historically have invested in timber, have invested in agricultural ground in the Midwest, um, moving to grass ran ranch investment, you know, looking for very low cap, you know, a decent cap rate, but really a store of value. And if you sort of look at things in an asset allocation perspective, just like I've got my cash and I have my investments that are I'm taking more risk with, and you look at your cash and you look at an environment like we're in today, um, where maybe they're not in, excited to invest in an equity market that the S&P is up 25% this year, um, and they have extra cash and they want to put it in some place that they deem would be safe. But if not safe, it's certainly uh, has intrinsic value and it has, uh, you know, uh, something you can use. Um, and you see this sort of conversation evolving into, you know, what does it take to buy something of significance where it got a little bit of that incoming and Kim kind of picked on that, that number of 20,000 acres or more. Um, and, you know, you've got a vast piece of America. We're not making any more of it. Uh, it's appreciating at some number greater than, you know, 6% a year on average. It's obviously guaranteed that that'll continue, but, if you're sitting in a U.S. Treasury bond right now, earning 1.6 percent, and you've got a 4 percent inflation rate, your money is losing. You know, you're losing money on that cash. And there are a lot of a lot of people that say that's just not a great place to be, and I'd rather have it in land. Um, and you know, there, you can look at that in any state, frankly. But uh, I think the appeal of Montana now becoming, you know, sort of a viable hot market, so to speak. Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, is um, has been the trend and. Uh, that's changing some of the dynamics to that. You know, the good news for that part is I, I often say you get an outside investor that comes in, they, they typically hire local people to run the ranch. They, they typically spend a decent amount of money improving it. So they're, they're 
they're putting money into the local economy. I, I think many of them are very good stewards of the land, um, you know, but then the, the conflict of access to the public and uh, to hunting and, um, you know, just that, that dynamic is something that's shifting um, the course of the conversation at a pretty rapid rate. Uh, so there are some of those kind of resistant points to that, that make it uh, a little bit less appealing, maybe um, from the Montanans perspective of seeing these investors come in. But they've always, as I said earlier, they've always been around and there've always been big families buying ranches. But when you kind of go through those dynamics of, you know, a place to store value, do I buy gold? Do I buy, you know, yep. another, it's sort of that, I think that's the kind of corollaries to look at that, at, that from that perspective as an investor. So as far as value, let's just take your region and just compare it to, say, Manhattan. We always know that in Manhattan, Tribeca is extremely expensive. The West Village is extremely expensive. The Lower East Side is a little more affordable, better deals. In that entire region of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, all of that, where what's considered what's always been the most expensive areas, and where are the where's the value? Like for someone who wants to, where, where's the introduction to the ranch? I want to. Where's my, what is, do you need $5 million to kind of introduce yourself to at least a ranch to understand, sell it, get something else? How does, give me a sense of that. Kim, I'll let you take that one and I can add to it. Okay. Well, you know, the, the higher dollar areas have always been in the Western part of the state where all the scenery and mountains and all that is. And so it just depends on what you're looking for. I mean, um, I have a contract on a, 410 acre place on the Shields River for 3.75 million. And it's a hobby farm, hobby ranch with a fishing river. How many acres? 410 acres. So, you know, there's, um, it just depends on what you're looking for. You know, I, um, well, can you if do someone has three or $4 million, they can get in to the market. Yeah, they can get into the market and that's what's happening. We've seen the dollar per acre price kind of go out the window and people come in and say, I've got $5 million to spend. What can you show me? Yeah. And you can show them everything from a house in Big Sky on a lot for $5 million to, you know, a rural property, you know, where they could build their own home where there's a nice home on it. That's, you know, probably under 640 acres in the Western part of the state. Your $5 million is going to go a lot farther in the plains or you know somewhere else but the one you named the 400 acres it's not big enough to have a cattle operation but i could hunt and i could fish and that's pretty hunt, much you it. Can fish you can grow some hay and sell the hay and you can pay your taxes with that and ride horse bikes ride horses bikes yeah go to town for dinner with your family and you know I and mean, that's still a big that's still a big parcel by east coast standards right, right. so that yes about farms around here in upstate New York and you get a, a couple hundred acres and that's a, you know, a proper farm and, and, you know, Long Island, we used to have farms of, you know, hundred acres. Um, you know, those are, those are the typical size when I down in Maryland, the 250 acre farm was about as big as it got. Um, yeah. It reminds me of the movie giant. They have like, you know, 300 acres, a horse farm and they're like, you know, Mr. Benedict, what size, you know, what size is your thing? And he doesn't want to say, he doesn't want to say, and they keep pushing. He's like, but surely, Mr. Benedict, you have 20,000, 30,000? He's like, I have 595,000 acres to be exact. And they all just like, they're quiet. They're like, <laughs> that's right. Well, it's a sort of an unwritten rule. Don't ask a rancher how large his ranch is, because that's like asking him how much money he has in his bank account. Right. Uh, but it, it, I do think that, you know, that if you look at just sort of the, um, the comparison of what, what might be Tribeca, um, maybe the, you know, sort of the Gallatin Valley or Paradise Valley. And that those are sort of the um, boardwalk, you know, uh, park place. So that's sort of Park Avenue uh, property. And then, you know, as you start to get, as, as Kim said, as you start to get in some of these smaller towns, there's still some great value and some um, amazing amenities. They're just, you just don't have, um, you know, a college town or university town like Missoula or Bozeman, which is attracting a lot of these companies, bringing in industry, a lot of infrastructure and support. Um, there's just a vibe. There's good restaurants. Like it's got, you know, all of it going on. And that's, that's, you know, those are your kind of hot markets in New York too, where you've got a community, you've got a real, you know, real presence and people want to be there. Um, you know, as you get out and in, into the ranges and, you know, if you went, if we're the way I'm uh, sort of behind me is the West is start is the start of the Western part of the state. And it starts just going West and it all looks like that. I mean, that 
right above me is the granite peak which is the highest uh, point in montana and that's the view from our ranch but if i look the other way it's rolling hills for forever <laughs> i mean for for you know hundreds and hundreds of miles and that has a lot of appeal certainly from my perspective in terms of yielding cash ranch investing that's a whole nother conversation and one that you could spend an entire episode or two on um, but there, there are still a lot of value to that and, and, and people find it attractive as well. But it is very remote. You're not going to a Starbucks. Uh, you know, you're, you're lucky if you get to a gas station uh, within, you know, 20 miles or 30 miles. And, and you have to hole up there and basically camp there and live there and enjoy it while you're there. And, um, you know, people obviously live there and, and have done that for, you know, 100 plus years. But for people coming from the East Coast or the coasts or the big cities, um, that's a pretty rural experience. That's like for being sure. in the- for sure. It's a culture <laughs> shock for sure, you know, and you don't have cell phone service everywhere and and all of that. But I, I get a lot of things done when I'm driving halfway across the state in my head anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. It's got a lot of appeal. On the one hand, I've learned enough from this conversation and talking to Keith that um, 20,000 acres is... Uh, a real commitment. Uh, the 400 acres you just described, you know, and uh, for only a couple million dollars, it makes sense to me now as a viable alternative. If you don't want to go to Nantucket because you think Nantucket is just a little bit too crowded, is is also difficult to get to because you have to make arrangements for the ferry and all that. And once you get there, it's kind of crowded and you say, you know, the Hamptons aren't what they used to be. Nantucket isn't what it used to be. Um, Palm Beach is really, really, really expensive. Where else can we go as a family and, um, and, and, take, it, and take it down a notch? And yeah. what you're describing, you know, Montana sounds pretty awesome. Um, so it I, is. I, think, I think it sounds like buying your own private island, <laughs> literally, because you are so isolated by the space. It's pretty yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, Roberto, I think that's a really good analogy. And a lot of people want that, you know, so it's, it's, um, that's a really good analogy. Thank you for that. So um, when I say the word bubble, you don't think this is a bubble. This is not a function of low interest rates, a high, uh, you know, mon money leaving the stock market from, you know, an anxiety over the stock market and oversold market. I mean, this is not a bubble. This is, I hear you saying this is a long-term trend because you have well, so many that, I mean, it's, buyers in it's, the market. It's proven it out over the last 30 years that on, on, you know, as a whole, it's a pretty good investment out here, you know, and, um, and there's a different pressure on the state right now. I mean, I've been in this long enough that I kind of listened to my gut. And in 2008, I knew I was 2007, I could feel something was going to happen. And sure enough, it did and, and uh, burst the bubble. But right now, um, I talk to all my other colleagues and other people that are brokers. And I'm like, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. There's so much pressure on this market. As you can see from the stats I showed you, they're just, you know, when you're only listing half of what you're selling, it just tells you that it's, it's just a big push. So it may, you know, I mean, we might, if, if, if rates you know, the thing is, is we have so many cash buyers here that don't care about interest rates or loans or any of that. They're just coming in with a big pot full of cash and buying a place. They don't, they're, you know, they're putting down cash to close in 30 days. I mean, it's just a not, they do some due diligence and that's that, you know, and so a lot of them don't really care about you know, interest rates at this point. Most, in fact, most of the ranch, larger ranch sales, they're in the past, up until the last 18 months, have not been very leveraged. So um, the real estate, the residential market, of course, more, more of that. But we've also had lots and lots of companies coming in here and buying up all these houses in these towns from Livingston to Bozeman to Big Timber, where I live, and just renting the houses out. You know, I mean, so we've got that going on out here, just like you guys probably. Um, so yeah, it's hard to say, but it does, it feels different than before. It feels like we've been found and they're, they're not going to make any more Montana and people are going to come and get a piece of it while they can. That's what it feels like. Beautiful. So you're a buyer, Keith, you're a buyer, not a seller. Well, as you know, as we had discussed, I think any, like any real estate 
and who knows if it's a bubble or not, but I think a lot of, of what Kim pointed out is probably true. And, and when the stock market sells off, people oftentimes rush to hard assets and store value. So it could be quite the opposite effect. If we had a mm-hmm. correction market, you could actually see money flowing into land, which mm-hmm. has happened past. Um, I do think low interest rates does drive a lot of this. I mean, I, I, from what I can see and what in my own personal experiences with um, you know colleagues and friends, uh, they they are taking cash and they're they're buying ranches with cash. I mean, many of them are taking the cash back out after they buy it, much like yeah. you see in New York, um, because they're getting you know uh, you know added leverage and returns uh, elsewhere. But um, it is uh, you know I, it's hard to say that it's it's not a bubble. It, it could continue to go up over the long term. You have to look at everything out there in years in, in sort of five and ten year increments. I think and yeah. just safe. Um, you have to if you buy a large ranch. I think you should be prepared to own it for 10 years. And like mm-hmm. owning any island, there are a lot of uh, responsibilities that come with that. And mm-hmm. your phone is ringing off the hook constantly from people calling you asking what, what to do. But yeah. uh, it, uh, I do think long-term, it's a great place um, to store value and um, well, the trend will continue on the up, upside. I, I'll, my one parting comment, I'll say that I did you know, buy a parcel at one point about eight or nine years ago. And it's really kind of the height of that first, uh, you know, sort of 2007, eight range and price that I paid was uh, in that level. And it took literally five years for it to come back to that price. And, you know, just in the last year, has it really appreciated um, to the point where it's, um, you know, it's well above the the, the purchase price, but it, it took, you know, took eight years. So I'll leave it at that. It's not, not a guarantee like anything um, when you're, you're placing your money and you, if you enjoy it and like to use it, um, then it has other value. Well, this has been great. I, uh, I've learned so much about Montana and I want to now, I want to go learn more. Uh, one thing that we didn't mention and we don't really have time is that Keith just bought the T-Rex ranch. And I said, why do they call it the T-Rex ranch? And it was because one of the most complete T-Rex skeletons was found on Keith's ranch. And uh, I looked that up and T-Rex bones are going for some big bucks right now. So if you thought prices were high in Montana already, they find a few more T-Rex dinosaur bones. And you should see his archaeological expedition that he's got going there. The sky's the limit. Who knows how high Montana could go? A few more bones could be, you know, out of sight. Um, This has been a phenomenal call. Thank you so much for an education uh, Montana I and agree. ranching and ranch land and operations. This is great. Even a, uh, a guy out there in the Hamptons, Roberto Cabrera, has got to be thinking of turning in his Hamptons pad for, for an island in Montana. Right, Roberto? <laughs> when I get a private jet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, this is great. Everyone, thank you, thank you. John Sailor.